You're listening to GGR Pirate Radio. Don't be a juice bag. Welcome back, dear listeners, to episode four of Federation Conversations, or FedCon for short. Today, I asked my panelists, Admiral Lunsford and Captain BJ, how they would handle themselves when they feel a temper tantrum coming on. Because let's face it, folks, even as adults, as we endeavor to live long and prosper with Vulcan prosaic posture in our daily lives, we fail utterly, uh, at least for me, frequently. So when this happens to Admiral Lunsford, he tries to keep his cool, but when his opponent shows a weakness, he verbally eviscerates them until they're crying in a corner. Of course, he always feels bad about it after the fact and eats his feelings away through mountains of waffles. In fact, the cafeteria at Starfleet Academy announces a special code when he's coming for a visit, which prompts everyone to keep a ready supply of waffles on hand. And it's not unheard of for Lunsford to apologize to his obliterated opponent by sending them a special jar of Canadian maple syrup, much to the confusion of those who don't know him very well. Welcome back, Admiral Lunsford. Thank you. Yay. This is very accurate. I also have to ask is since this is our fourth episode, does that mean we're going to be traveling back in time for whales? We'll save that. (laughs) Save that for the end. (laughs) Captain BJ, it's not unheard of for Captain Robinson to abruptly announce, I need to take a beat and we'll circle back. Before heading to the ready room, the question is what will follow? Some music with deep, quaking, percussive bass, or perhaps a more symphonic chorus like a howling typhoon of vibrations in the walls and halls. Sometimes it's two or three songs shared ship-wide, and it's almost collective therapy through the musical conscience of Captain Robinson. Occasionally it's instrumental, and the captain talks out loud through the challenges and concerns. Why save it all for the captain's log? Think of it as the Wiz Emerald City sequence aboard the USS Maestro until the captain soothes the stress away through song, and the journey keeps on keeping on. Welcome back, Captain Robinson. Thank you for having me. That was a perfect delivery of of that explanation, too. And I I would have to say, first off, Admiral, I've got some bacon to go with those waffles. Um, And I think they'll also pair well in with the syrup uh, when when that can happen. I just like I'm now picturing some cadet being like, man, Admiral Lusford really ripped me a new one. And then just like all of a sudden, like there's a chime and a courier brings a jar of maple syrup and it says from Admiral Lunsford, sorry, that's it. No big long explanation, just sorry. And they're like, why is there maybe? All right, whatever. (laughs) So BJ, I have a follow-up question for you. Does your, um, your your stream of consciousness talking over your music, does that happen shipwide? Is it like you open a channel to the entire ship? And talk it through. Yes. <laughs> I just like you hear the chime, the 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 boatswain chime, and it's like, <sighs> hey guys, how's everybody doing? Yeah, it's been a rough week. You're like, yeah, just... there's moments where it's it, you know, it's just that sigh followed by like, shit, 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 shit. Wait, <laughs> no, fuck. <sighs> okay. I love that so much. And you know what? 
you guys have such wonderful, charming um, ways that you have imagined your alter ego calming the temper tantrum. And uh, mine is not. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go. The only thing that really raises Professor Beachboard's blood pressure is lazy students. One might think she'd choose to yell at them or publicly embarrass them given her fiery personality, but no. She prefers to make her students write a 10-page paper by hand with a pencil on Old Earth-style college-ruled paper. Then she makes them fold them into intricate origami animals. Finally, she takes all of the students outside to a field with their paper animals and turns them into a bonfire. The papers, that is, not the students. She watches their work burn and burn while sipping on an exotic liqueur, the flames dancing in her eyes. And with a smile, she marches them all back in and begins class again with this simple statement. Waste my time and I'll waste yours. I'll burn your work, make you watch, and force you to do it again. Now, where were we? (laughs) That's some like Mirrorverse stuff. Ooh. That's what I was thinking, because I was watching the the Ready Room episode talking about Lower Deck's reflections, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm imagining my my mirror self, and maybe I have some repressed anger that I really need to deal with. <laughs> maybe go, uh, go to a bonfire that isn't um, burning students' work and such. <laughs> I, I actually, I picture your mirrorverse self being much, like aggressively angry like outwardly and like in their face and like because what yours is yours bubbles below and then it comes out in this very artistic manner because you make them create this thing there's actually a lesson involved in all of this hard work that you've put actually doesn't mean anything it's the interconnections that we have with each other that's more important and then you're like don't waste my time there's a lesson in all of it but there's also a secret lesson underneath of it as well Whereas, yeah, your mirrorverse one would just be brutal and embarrass people. And like, yeah, whereas mine would be like, well, first off, I would have just a goatee. Um, it would be all, <laughs> my hair would be dyed. It would all be like jet black, same with the goatee. And it would be slicked back and like, just very like quiet and methodical and like emotionless. And like, just, that would be scary to me. That's that's my mirrorverse. It's like well thought out and planned and emotionless. Like, ugh, creepy. I think like, the mirror me is like, okay. Oh, no, you go ahead. Cause I was going to ask you that, that follow-up question. I think mirror me <clears throat> bald, clean shaven and is an athlete, like hardcore in the gym athlete. It's, it's never music. It's just like work bra kind of thing. And, and I, I hope I never meet him. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I do have to say to the, um, just to the burning cause it's brilliant. Um, it reminded me of in college um, when I, I was a music major and we would do operas and opera workshops. Um, whenever there was a production that enough of us didn't care for, for you know enough reasons, we would have a post-show bonfire where you could bring your scores and people would typically rip out the parts of the scores they hated the most and just gleefully like toss each page into the fire and just try to let go and release the the stress of it. So you reminded me of that. That was more of the the student to having to deal with professors and productions side of it, but it was useful. That sounds so cathartic. Was it Sondheim usually that went in the fire? Never Sondheim. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of Mozart, 
um, some Handel, and then too many terrible contemporary things. I won't make you tell me what they are. I, it's probably uh, best not to, in case in case one of those composers turns out to be a Trekkie and happens to listen <laughs> to this. Um. Oh, no, that would be terrible. Yeah. Um, or Mike, thanks for making me sound so thoughtful in my design for getting rid of my temper tantrum. Well, you have to realize that if I'm an admiral and I'm working at Starfleet Command, most likely you report to me. And in this instance, then I'm going to have these complaints of <laughs> Professor Beachboard being a psychopath. And I'm like, you have to understand that she's teaching you a lesson here. Do you want some waffles here? It's OK. Um, let's talk about this. OK, she's a wonderful professor. In fact, like many great captains have come from her and she's teaching you a lesson. And then like afterwards, I'm, I'm like hitting you up on the communicator. And I'm like, hey, can you stop the bonfire thing? Like, seriously? And you're just like, but it's so much fun. I'm like, I know, but this last kid said he got burned and it was a whole thing. And like, you know, with no money in the future, I don't know how we're going to handle like liability and things like that. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's keep the lawsuits to a minimum since none of us get paid for this. Fair enough. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of villainous people, um, RIP Louise Fletcher, we loved to hate you. You are the queen of condescension, best villains, um, and you will be missed. We, we were talking about this on um, a friend of GGR's uh, radio show yesterday, Mr. Ulysses E. Campbell of Fantastic Forum, that when she was on set for these episodes, every other actor stepped up their game. And like that, that shows you, one, the consummate professional that she is. Two, Louise Fletcher won an Academy Award opposite Jack Nicholson. If that tells you how badass she was and how she could hold her own on the stage, I don't know what else will. Like that, this is a consummate professional who brought her A game every single time she was there. And like, like you said, love to hate them and like easily like top five villains in, in, in the Star Trek pantheon. She had 14 appearances over seven seasons of DS9. Um, I mean, that's, that's how you know you're iconic because you just keep coming back. She would make my skin crawl. I remember watching her and wanting Kira to punch her. That would have been I'm, epic. I'm trying to remember the scene exactly. There was there was something where she was like Kira was giving her like giving her the business, and her response was my child, of course, because she always calls everybody my <laughs> child. She was like, "My child, do you think that I wasn't being beaten by the Cardassians when they possessed our world?" And and like she just goes into this thing, and Kira's just like mouth agape, like. I didn't, th I didn't think of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk away now and I'll, I'll see you later. And I'm sorry. Like you could just see the look on her face and it, yeah, just absolutely well-rounded character where you, you realize that even the people who are the villains were human at one point, well, Bajoran at, at one point, like they had, they have a soul, they have a, uh, an existence. They may have been a good person at one point, but just horrible things happened to them. And this turned them into this. And yeah. say a couple of trivias uh, just uh, to for for Queen Fletcher. Um, she won four out of five awards from the Online Film and Television Association for her work on Deep Space Nine. Um, and then I think this is just a fun quote uh, from an interview she did with Star Trek.com in 2012 uh, when Fletcher spoke about how she approaches her character's motivation. Power. She wanted power and she was ambitious. She was sort of a Margaret Thatcher in space, or as I used to say, I was the Pope in space. 
people would say, oh, you're doing Star Trek. Who are you playing? I'd say, think the Pope in space, except she's like an ancient Pope from the old days when Popes were ruthless and powerful and exerted their powers and fought wars and did all kinds of naughty things. Well read. Speaking of evil people, uh, Mike, did you watch Lower Decks? I did. Yes, I'm all caught up. I just caught up before we uh, we started, actually. Excellent. All right. So the last episode I watched today, so that's forefront in my mind. Uh, spoiler alert, Rutherford has a, kind of a glitch, you might say. What are your thoughts about uh, Rutherford's old self coming back? Uh, wow. So now I get to admit that I thought I was all caught up and now I'm not. Um, oh, shit. So, <laughs> wow. I thought I watched all the episodes. Hang on. Now I'm going to Paramount Plus because oh. this is embarrassing and we you might have to cut this. Five. We might have to cut this from the podcast. No, um, we're not cutting this. This is fun. No, the last, <laughs> one that I saw, the last one that I saw is they were going up against the Delta Squad people. And, oh, no. Yeah. One more. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, they released this past week. This oh, past Friday, no. this we're out. I'm one behind then. Okay. Okay, so we won't talk about Rutherford. Look, no, talk about it because I want to hear. I'm not, I am, a, I'm unique in the geek world where spoilers don't phase it's, me because it's oh, all about execution. There's a lot in the episode. Me. Like, there's it's a okay. lot. Talk about it, please. I, I enjoy just hearing y'all talk about this stuff and I will chime in when I can. PJ, tell him okay. what happened. Um, well, there were two main things that happened. Um, uh, you know, Mariner Boimler, they're going to have to, they have to run like basically a booth for people to sign up for Star Trek. Like everything's going well enough that they're putting on recruitment booth basically, which is, nice. you know, like job fair. Yay. You know, it, it's Mariner's dream. Um, and of course, like everyone else, it, it just, it's, it's a hot mess of it. She has to stay in her booth because, um, oh, what's his name? Jerry O'Connor. Ransom. Ransom. Um, it, you know, tells her if you leave you're out oh where's he where's he she's gonna go to um um SD, starbase starbase 80 80 right yeah like the <laughs> armpit of the universe if she yes. if she takes one step out of that booth to the point where she's even terrified to leave the booth so it's like okay can't leave the booth now unfortunately they're put next to um an independent bounty uh or not bounty hunter but basically collector basically independent collector um archaeologist um, guild independent archaeologist guild <laughs> the the IAG. Um, and she calls it the Indie Guild, which I think is a very nice pop culture reference. Fun. Yes. But she's just picking on Mariner the whole time and like edging her on, giving her reasons to want to get out of there and like, you know, beat her ass. And then everyone else starts coming, but like everyone else starts coming by the booth and everyone's just picking on on the two of them. And so like that's its own thing. Um, then you've got Rutherford on the ship having some glitches again because he's always having glitches with his device. And uh, Tandy tries to clear out some of his uh, cash data in there so that he uh, will stop having glitches. Um, suddenly his piece turns from it's like normally blue i think it is but it turns red his eye, uh -oh. eye uh, screen That's and it's a, it's a different rutherford and and i my first thought was like oh shit is this like mirror verse rutherford are we like are we are we crossing up uh you know different timelines um we find out at the end that it was actually old og pre uh installation rutherford that was trying to fight through um, all of these different updates and the different like data clears to maintain his still a presence in his his original body. Um, and the two of them come to a great meeting where not only do we realize that like we haven't 
gotten to actually know Rutherford because a lot of his past was deliberately wiped from him. Um, but we find out that it was deliberately wiped from him be by someone within Starfleet, within the Federation, because there's a cover-up going on. Um, Rutherford was a part of something that went wrong and was given this implant and his memory wiped with this whole fake thing of like, well, this is just what he wanted to do. Da -da 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 -da. So we know there's some sort of uh, cover up going on at Starfleet now. Um, yeah, that's that's at least the Rutherford side of it. There's still a whole lot worth in that episode for you to watch, Mike. So you'll enjoy it when you whoa, see it. Whoa, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot. Of course, it's yeah. the, the like all the other episodes are great, right? But like this one just seems to really like, set the tone for the rest of the season. And of course, it's the one that I didn't watch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this was and like finding out about Mariner, you know, being uh, being daughter in in season one, and it was yeah. just like, oh, you know, this is gonna fuck up yeah. shit when it comes out. Yeah. yeah, this is now that kind of yeah. You know, I wanted to point out something from the the fourth episode that I that I was watching. Actually, it might have been the third episode where they're on the planet and they have the the dream uh, like gems, like yeah. yeah, and like they did something that I'm really appreciative of is they made Mariner. Um, I guess bisexual would be the best term for it because it's like, oh, you guys are calling each other babe now is what Boimler said. And she's like, yeah, that's what it is. She's my hot Andorian girlfriend. And it like, it just wasn't a thing and they didn't make it a thing. And like, that's exactly the way it should be. And nobody cares. Thought it was awesome. Agreed. It was super cool. It was, it, it, it was fluid with the, just the storytelling. And in, and like you said, it made it no big deal. And it just made the jokes even funnier because everything super flowed. And then they had that uh, great kind of like, I don't know, that contrast to it, really. But uh, with, in terms of with all the, the stuff, the, the cameo from um, um, uh, Leah Brahms. Coming oh, in. God, that was great. <laughs> that was fantastic of just like, wait, you have this like uh, uh, this 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 dream too, this fixation on her. <laughs> don't you just want to recalibrate the warp core? <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, oh man, outstanding! I'm loving yeah. this new season. I'm, I mean, I'm loving Lower Decks. And funny enough, I know we were talking about this a little bit last time, but it's like since last time, um, I have now found a place for being able to just enjoy all of Rick and Morty, um, including some of the new stuff, which has been really cool. But it's almost like, like I know it's because of Lower Decks that now I can enjoy Rick and Morty, um, and it just kind of makes me happy to have like more things to to be. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. Unintended consequences. Exactly. <laughs> um, by the way, I'm super excited about you seeing what happens at the recruiting booth, Mike. I'm excited is, about this as well. Yeah, it yeah. is outstanding. We're going to try to I'm trying. I'm so trying so hard not to reveal because it's the bestest. That's why I stopped. I was like, you know, what? we'll leave that that side of it for you because that's still plenty. Um, they really are packing them in so far with this season in terms of the content in the episodes. And I think that's super, super fun. I loved the opening of this new season with Grounded and and just this whole like, ah, oh, the Lower Deckers are going to take it into their own hands and they're going to make this all work. And, you know, we're going to defeat this military tribunal. Of course, the whole time they're just like, you know, trust the process, trust the process, trust the process. And ultimately, all that got it done was the process on its own. Um, yeah. And it was like, yeah, this is a this is a good lesson to even like remind myself of that. Sometimes you think like, all right, I'm going to just like engineer my own way through this shit and it's like or 
or maybe some of the systems in place actually still do function. I think we live in a world where we're constantly feeling like most of the systems in place don't function. So it was it was a nice like hopeful reminder that that yeah. sometimes shit just works. On and the also, oh sorry, <laughs> I was gonna say, and also we got to see that if you polarize the deck plates on the ship, uh, you can inspire a space jellyfish orgy. That was amazing. That was cool. That was gooey. It was gooey. <laughs> so on the first episode of the Ready Room for this season of Lower Decks, Will Wheaton was talking to Mike McMahon and Don Lewis, who plays um, the captain, mm -hmm. Captain Freeman. And uh, she was talking about how that first episode of season three, our favorite characters were the B story. And we didn't get to see the A story of the dramatic courtroom scene like you normally get to see in Star Trek. You got to see the B story and, and how much fun that was and how everything they did was for naught. And yet we still got to see it all because the point wasn't what they were doing. It was how they were doing and how they were growing and us enjoying their antics. And also seeing the uh, first contact amusement park. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh man, that was fantastic. Yeah, the first contact amusement park. It made me really sad that there isn't already like a full, like just like, I, like I'm kind of annoyed at the world of like, wait a minute, why did we miss this? Why hasn't someone somewhere been developing a real Trek verse land for people right? to, to, to be in an actual so, fleet academy and, and like, what? come on. I never got to experience it, but friend of the show, again, we get to bring him up, Ulysses Campbell, um, they used to have the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. And he described it as just, it was amazing. He said that like, you go to Quark's bar and you can order a drink, but then also you get on a transporter pad and it transports you to the bridge of the Enterprise. And you get to walk through the Enterprise D and like um, Riker gives you this like special mission that you have to do. Like he said, it was really, really, really cool. When when did this exist? Um, I don't even know. Like I gotta look it up. Like let me let me see. Let me, uh, and I did the same thing with our bodies, like like a sag of the shoulders and a mouth agape. Like why are we not there? Why didn't we get to do this? So it was at the it was at the Hilton. Um, it opened in 1998. Uh, let's see, in Las Vegas, the the pavilion underwent one major renovation in 2004, which had the Borg Invasion 4D attraction. What? Um, it closed in September 2008 and was scheduled to reopen in the uh, Neonopolis Mall uh, on May 8th, 2009 in time for the premiere of the Star Trek film. It was then pushed back to 2010 and then it was announced that they had lost the license in 2011. What a bummer. Oh, man. That's so sad. Dear universe, please bring it back. I'm just saying, Elon Musk, mm. I hate you. I think you're scum. However, if you ever wanted to endear yourself to me and all, and all Trek fans, Use your money, your vast wealth, and and reopen the Star Trek experience. You can Time do it. to prove you're worth something, Mr. Musk. Exactly. And the designs are there. I mean, it was in the episode, right? Just follow that design and expand upon it a little bit, you know? It'd be perfect. It really would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, BJ, let's talk about music. Ooh, where, where, where to begin? Um, I mean, y'all know me. I'm, I'm a music person. That's why I run the USS Maestro. Um, and, and I mean, I, I always say that like I eat, sleep, and breathe music. It's my blood. It's my oxygen. It's my everything. 
And one thing I have to say about Star Trek is that it has had some incredibly impactful music from the get-go, which I think is just really cool to be able to say about it as an entity. Most things working on music, you know, it's a development process before you start to find the things that are working. I feel like one of the things that Star Trek had going from the get-go was OG theme music, which I just think is super cool to acknowledge in the series. And it was never afraid to play with music as a part of culture, but also as a part of the what ifs in in sci-fi that that you get to play around with. Um, there are so many episodes throughout the series that go from actual moments of people performing music, playing an instrument or actually singing or reflecting off of a piece of music from the past, um, things that are a little bit more familiar to our ears being of people from the 20th and 21st century. But you know, for them, it's like a deep dive into history to hear this Mozart piece or something like that. To the point where you've got episodes like in uh, the Voyager series when uh, you know, our doctor decides he wants to stay on this planet where they appreciate him bringing his voice singing opera because how often does a doctor get to sing opera until he realizes that's going to inspire them to just make their own music which sounds like absolute trash garbage static. Like that's just literally what it sounds like if you took trash and like made it made noise and static and like stomped on garbage and put them all together at once that's that was the sound they produced. I'm not judging I'm just describing. Um, <laughs> But but again, what ifs? Because you can do that in sci-fi in space with music, and it's super, super cool. But I really wanted to bring it back to theme songs. And there's a split to it, I think. Because when I think about theme songs, I think when all of us think about theme songs, first we think about the shows. And, and that's, to a, a great extent, like absolutely accurate. I think something that might go even further though, at least it does for me, and I feel like it may for others, is that often I tend to think of, at least in Star Trek, of my theme songs pretty much paired with either a particular crew or a particular ship. It's it's not necessarily that I think of it as just like the theme of the show. Like when I think of Voyager, I mean, I'm thinking of the music as like, this is for the U.S. Voyager, you know, um, I think the only time I do, don't do that happily, um, it also leaves me with a little bit of gap, is when it comes to the Enterprise. Because there's been so much music for the Enterprise, for the ship, but then there was also, you know, the show, Enterprise. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Isn't yeah, that your favorite? Yeah. Uh, oh, is that my favorite? Yeah. Is that, is, that what you, is that what you're trying to say? That, is that, that anyone's favorite? Is it allowed to be identified as a favorite? Nope. You know, I, I try to be a very <laughs> open-minded person, but if there's a moment where I'm going to be a bigot, it's going to be against the theming put into <laughs> the TV show for Star Trek Enterprise. Never in my life have I felt I knew of a franchise that had so many brilliant things going for it from the get-go, particularly with the music, that then decided like, we're gonna try something a little, a little different, and you know, couldn't have missed the mark, I think, further. It's you been know, a long one, road. It, it, it ugh, that was a terrible joke and still appropriate. <laughs> been a long road, getting from there to here. <laughs> 
got that I like mean, 90s thing going on too where everybody's voice sounded like that yeah this is why it was like what are you thinking this show is happening into the dawn of the 21st century but you went for that like 80s 90s nostalgia that that no one needed again you know like okay you had rod stewart eventually come in but you started with or no you started with rod stewart but then you moved it on to to uh was it russell russell wilson or russell watson i think is his name who was a counter tenor that's where we stop because counter tenors should not be recording thematic music for anyone in the 21st century Again, nothing against the counter tenor. It's just, this isn't your time. You had centuries to do your thing. And it certainly wasn't going to be at the dawn of the 21st century in the midst of the Star Trek franchise. So, you know, that's still a bit of like a black spot on my heart um, for, for the <laughs> Trekverse when it comes to Star Trek Enterprise um, in terms of the show. But beyond the show, I mean, like, Next Generation, I think, is some of the most fabulous iconic music i don't know how many times i've ran into someone and we're talking about that other star thing you know star wars and someone will start singing the next federation theme thinking it's from star wars really? and I'm like no no you're you're crossing lines i think like that is one of the most iconic themes in people's heads i would dare say of all time people who might not have even known the show, but know about just like space. There's something about TNG's theme that I think really just encapsulates so much of that that beauty in, in sci-fi. And the other thing I wanted to capture, or just kind of like throw back in my own just music geekness, I know I'm all over the place with this stuff because I get too excited, is that if you are a fan of space music, um, especially through all of the Trek verse and perhaps beyond the Trek verse, um, I have to highly recommend that you find some time to sit down and explore music from the contemporary classical composer Gustav Holst. H-O-L-S-T is that last He did the planets. Holst did the planets, which so is good. easily um, the first great take at someone trying to figure out what the universe beyond our planet might actually sound like. For centuries, there were plenty of pieces of music made about mythology, um, made about nature, made about um, pastoral settings, and, and made off of paintings, or off of animals, or off of cultures. Holst was one of the first to say, you know what, I'm going to actually just figure out what all that might sound like. Um, the Planets is an absolute brilliant, about an hour long um, collection of works uh, that is absolutely worth listening to. And then I would dare say go beyond that because Holst really is a sci-fi composer. There are so many sets of works that he's done where he always just said like, well, what if? What if for this? What if for that? Um, he would explore different religions and different faiths and try to, after studying, um, encapsulate pieces that would reflect upon the different deities of different faiths. Not faiths that he ever practiced, but that he took the time to just study and learn on and do that musical exploration in. Um, and so if you if you are as in love with Trekverse music as I am, then I definitely recommend do some, some exploring through the Holst verse as well. And I think your musical ears will not be uh, disappointed.
and the last thing I was going to say with music, and it comes back to um, lower decks. I was talking a little bit about this in our last time too, but you know, and it's like as I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the USS Maestro and cue myself up with a little bit of like just background lightly playing that like I like the lower decks theme. I think it's it's very much in that great spirit of the Trek verse. I actually think it's one of the stronger, more contemporary themes. I think I like it better than I like the Picard themes kind of thing. But what I love the most about Lower Decks and its music is that it's in season one um, in the Crisis Point episode when uh, Boimler's trying to prep for his interviews with um, Bridge uh, crew. Uh, Mariner hijacks his holodeck program and turns it into essentially a feature film. Um, and so we kind of get like Lower Decks the movie happening. And the thing that I love the most about it is that there's a moment where like, okay, Captain Freeman, you get this assignment, you guys have to take care of this second contact thing or whatever. And they even make a joke about how like normally it'd be the Enterprise, but you know, rights and whatnot. Um, but as they're going towards the Cerritos to do it, they're just like, well, it's a good thing the Cerritos just got this upgrade. And what they upgrade truly is the music to film level of like the majestic Cerritos. The Cerritos is ready to launch whenever you are. Oh, there she is. minute and five seconds of theme music added to the episode just to give it that film upgrade like ah oh, it's good stuff i'm done that is so that was beautiful yeah i forgot about that part of that show how it, like the entire orchestration and the sweeping and the that final bit where it's like the tempo is really fast it was yes yeah the visuals perfectly match it i mean it's just like lower shot overhead shot <laughs> spiral overhead shot zooming oh, out yeah. shot. like it's it oh, all it, these it, all these beauty passes yeah like they did yeah. In the motion picture. yeah and you can hear in that score like we were talking about before like you can hear parts of it that sound very similar to like the stuff that horner did for star trek 2 and star trek 3 like mm -hmm. yeah whoever is composing um lower decks is doing an outstanding job because like i'm i'm hearing it and yeah. like yeah it's it's that's awesome it's so cohesive oh it's the track has such cohesion in a lot of its music and that's something that most series don't have um when they do it ends up being almost too too cliche you know it's one of the don't even talk about star wars too much but it's like star wars they they sometimes overplay their themes and and it's a little like eh. um but i don't know track has the finesse and i, I love chris that about that. chris westlake lower decks music 
Also, you can, uh, if when you Google who composed Lower Decks theme, something comes up that I'm definitely going to read later. Star Trek Lower Decks musical Easter eggs explained. Sci-fi.com. Ooh, okay. Uh, what fun. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mike, talk to us about your rewatch of the original series. The 60s. Man, let me tell you about the 60s. If you're a historic, if you know much about history, there was a lot going on in the 60s in this country. Uh, we were getting out of the very stuffy 50s right after World War II, and we were starting to get experimental. And you saw this with like the hippie movement. You saw this with the first time you really saw a lot of uh, like a lot of government dissent. We started really questioning things. We started at like, is the government really doing what's best for us and what's best for the country and what's best for the world? And that comes through in things like Star Trek, but also you have hope because NASA, NASA had just started, it was in its infancy. Like we were just starting to explore space. So there was this great hope that like we could do amazing things and we could explore the cosmos and all of this wonderful stuff. And Star Trek ends up being, and because I'm going to criticize the hell out of it, so just be prepared. Um, Star Trek at its core is still this wonderful, hopeful thing that shows that when everyone works together, we can do amazing things as a human race. When we put aside racism and bigotry and sexism, wonderful things come from this. However, of all of the episodes there are of Star Trek, of the original series, which uh, there are 79 episodes of the original series, so many more episodes in a season back then. There was like 40 episodes in season one. It was ridiculous. But like of, of those 79 episodes, there's maybe 10, maybe 15 that are really good. The rest, there are so many of them that are rehashes of the same shit. And like there, there's some wild shit in this series, man. There, There's one, and I'm trying to remember exactly the title here. There's so many good episodes in season one. Let me be clear. There are so many amazing episodes of the 29 episodes in season one, but there are some that are just like, what the fuck is going on here? Operation Annihilate is where we get to see the first instance of Sam Kirk. William, Sh- uh, like like Jim's, Jim Kirk's brother, who we see in Star Trek Strange New Worlds. However, for whatever reason, I don't want to say it was a budgetary concern. I guess they were like, well, why would we pay a second actor when we could, when we already have William Shatner? They made Sam Kirk. He literally just slapped a mustache on William Shatner. And they were like, there you go. Yeah, it's Sam Kirk. Look at him. Like, put a little gray in his hair. <laughs> so does in Strange New Worlds, didn't they put a mustache on the guy playing his brother? No, it's not. Yeah, he does have a. Yeah, he does have a mustache, but it's not <laughs> the nice same. It's not the same actor. It's not the same actor, no, which no, no, no. would have been hilarious. That would have been funny. Yeah. Um, same mustache though. Absolutely, and and like the 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 <laughs> villain in this in this episode, space amoebas. That's your villain, space amoebas <laughs> that latch onto your back and then they kill you. Oh, it's crazy. There's so much stuff like that in season one and season two. Um, and the other one that I wanted to mention, if you want an episode where you're like. What were the 60s like? Watch episode 27, The Alternative Factor. It's a really high concept idea where there's this, they go to this planet, this dead planet, they find this dude. This dude's like, this guy's trying to kill me. What the hell's going on? And whenever the guy shows up to kill him, all of a sudden everything gets wonky and rainbows and uh, like, you know, Hendrix is playing in the background and like, it's just trippy, man. But like what it turns out, the answer is, is that he is the antimatter version of this guy. 
and they're trying to kill each other because matter and antimatter are always in constant like and i was like oh man that's deep i like that but like watching the special effects of like when they come next to each other and the camera pans out it trips out and there's rainbows everywhere and black lights and deep purple playing like it's yeah it, it's just it, it's very very of its time but that being said they didn't have the things that we have now special effects wise so you take all of this stuff with a grain of salt but there are some clunkers of episodes here there's some creepy stuff man there's one there's an early episode <laughs> i want to say it's like the third episode if i'm correct Miri is what it's called, right? So the, the crew of the Enterprise finds a duplicate of the planet Earth, and Captain Kirk and his away team find a population ravaged by a strange disease, which only children appear to have survived, right? There's this girl who has just goo-goo eyes for James T. Kirk, and he plays this up, and it's kind of creepy. He's just like, hey, so you think I'm handsome, huh? All right. <laughs> and you're just like, dude, no, no, Jim, stop. No, please don't. And it's, yeah. There, there's so many goofy episodes and you can tell that they were like, all right, how do we get an alien planet? Um, what other sets are available on the Paramount lot? We got a cowboy set. Fuck, let's go there. Let's go to the cowboy set. We'll make it a cowboy planet. And it's just like, again, uh, like uh, this is their time. This is what they had. This is what they, they worked with, what they had. But there were so many episodes where the concept of humans cannot be kept as pets came up. It comes up a lot in this series. We don't like being in prison. We need challenges. We need freedom, et cetera. It's a running theme. And it's surprising because it's the first episode of Star Trek ever, The Cage. The Cage is about this. But this comes up several times in this series. And I thought that was a really interesting thing for us as a society to be upset, not obsessed with, but really preoccupied. But it makes sense given that we were only, what, 20 years out from World War II? And like, what, what was the Nazi party trying to do? You know, like what was the Axis nation trying to do? Essentially like wipe out people that weren't like what they wanted. So, I mean, like it makes sense that this is the kind of thing that really sits in your mind. Um, some of these a, episodes, I'm sorry, go ahead. I have a random question and I don't yeah. know if you would know the answer to this, but I'm curious about whether the comic book world was also dealing with the same question. If all of us, you know, because post 9-11, we had a lot of superhero movies. Like we mm -hmm. wished as if we as a culture wish that we had a superhero to have saved us from 9-11. Yeah. So Makes I'm wondering, sense. I'm wondering if the cage thought was throughout all of our pulp culture. And well, I don't know. I mean, you see it in comics as well. I mean, you see it with the X-Men, you see it with um, Captain America, you see it with Iron Man. I mean, like they deal with these things. I mean, they deal with fascism. Um, I mean, Captain America's first issue was him punching Hitler in the face, like on the cover. So, I mean, like you see it in, in pop culture, it's embedded in it. As far as like the being being held as as like pets, that I think is, is I mean I would have to do some more research because you know I was born in the eighties, but like that for as far as I know that's a real Star Trek thing, like I don't know if a lot of other places did that. Mm -hmm. I mean it's the time of 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 space exploration of at least the starts there you know the moon was sixty nine, and the series is what sixty sixty six right? Yeah, that's correct. And so it, 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 it's, it's certainly, I think, in that vein of there was definitely a societal, cultural, and even like you're saying global thinking at that point on just like, we need to, we want to be able to get beyond whatever yeah. parameters you're setting for us or whatever society is already thinking is, is, you know, how far we can grieve or reach. We were aiming to extend the reach further. Yeah. 
I'm a huge fan of Futurama. Like hot oh, take Futurama. here. I actually, I actually like Futurama more than The Simpsons. Futurama is so inspired by Star Trek. It's funny. One of the things that I love, one of the things they do in Futurama is like when they're fighting robot Santa Claus and they're like, how do we defeat him? They're like, we have to give him a logic problem that he can't solve. Let's blow up his brain. That They do that in Star Trek like four times because there's like four societies that are run by robots or run by computers. And like Kirk just saunters in there all cocky. He's like, oh yeah, solve this. And like, then the computer blows up or pardon my language, he uses his dick to kill a computer too. Um, so... <laughs> There's an episode called What Are Little Girls Made Of? And there's a robot that's played by the guy who played Lurch from the Adams Family. And he's just like, he's like 6'9". He's giant and imposing and scary when he talks. He's like, I've created this other race of robots. Here's this hot woman robot. And I've made her to think, you know, to be as human as possible. And Kirk's like, hmm, I'm gonna try to sex up that robot. Like you just see, you see the look on his face immediately. He's like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And how does he defeat this robot? <laughs> He gets all handsy with her, right? And he's like, I'm going to sex this thing up and it's going to overload her brain. It's going to blow her mind, right? Like, <laughs> it's so ridiculous to think that somebody would be that arrogant and have that much machismo to be like, I'm going to be too much for this robot. Check it out. That happens a couple of times. He's like, watch, I'm going to kiss this thing. <laughs> Only Captain Kirk and Austin Powers. Yeah, right? Exactly. The, the cojones to think, yeah, I can sex this robot to death. I just imagine him like talking to Spock and be like, hey, Spock, watch, I'm going to go fuck this thing. And he's like, sir, please don't. <laughs> nah, nah. How, else, how else are we going to get out of this problem, Spock? And he's like, logic? And he's like, fuck that. Literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's, But I'm, I'm going to go through like my quick list because I have a bunch of notes from the ones that I have. The Menagerie is an episode that what it does is, is they re- play essentially it's it's an episode where they're watching an episode because they replay the cage so you can see what happened to christopher pike because they put christopher pike in his wheelchair which is fucked up like as we know because we've seen it actually happen and it's it's horrible and, and traumatizing but like now what it does is it shows you now that we've seen strange new worlds the relationship that spock and pike have and why he would have gone to these links to free his captain essentially give his captain like a life after it was taken from him in the most cruel way by him doing one of the most amazing things ever. Yeah. You understand why Spock was willing to violate every single principle of Starfleet to do this thing for Pike because Pike deserved it. There's an episode called errand of mercy and errand of mercy does something that I cannot stand in sci-fi and Star Trek does it the most. In fact, you've seen it. You, you saw it in strange new worlds. Um, in fact, the Star Trek knockoff, uh, the Orville does it as well, where there is a society that's so advanced, but you don't know how advanced they are until the very, very end of the episode. And they reveal, and they're like, oh, we're so powerful. We can just do whatever. And there's, you know, uh, and it's just like, fuck, like, no, you're supposed to tell this through the story. You're not supposed to like give us a soliloquy at the end that tells us how powerful you are. You know, and this, that just irritates me. <laughs> there's an episode called Dagger of the Mind. Dagger of the Mind is on a penal colony and it has this thing. It's basically just like a speaker in the ceiling, right? And it's got some strobe lights and shit, but it like wipes people's minds. And it's a surprisingly interesting commentary on the prison system. Like I didn't put two and two together when I was a kid. I was just like, Captain Kirk's gonna have to punch that dude. But like watching it as an adult, I'm like, wow, that's fucked up. Again, shout out to Yuli. He was like 
growing up during like like the reruns of the show so he watched these as a kid and he explains to me because he's really he's a huge trekkie he was explaining to me how some of these were like subtle nods to stuff there's an episode where we actually get to meet zephram cochran and i believe it's season two i have to find the name of the episode mm. we were but, watching it last night going to bed were you really <laughs> yes because it yeah. was the one with the the companion right yeah did you know you know what that's about actually do you know what the subtext of that is no, because they didn't finish it because they got okay. really upset when he had to go and betray. So okay. I was like, I, so, I need to go to sleep and have happy dreams. So what it is, is, is Zephram Cochran is like 200 years old at this point, but he's like, looks like he's like, you know, 50 year old white dude. Everybody's like, well, how are you still alive? He's like, oh, this cloud thing is keeping me alive. And, but it won't let Kirk and Spock and this ensign leave the planet and, or this uh, ambassador who's like going to die if they don't get her to uh, where they need to go. This, it turns out this cloud is in love with Zephram Cochran. But once Zephram Cochran finds out that it's in love with him, he freaks out. This was the guy who wrote this. This is about a homosexual relationship and being afraid to admit that what you love is outside the norm. Oh, wow. Because at the end of the episode, the cloud possesses the body of the ambassador who's going to die. And then Zephram Cochran's like, oh, you're a chick now? Cool. Before he was like, oh, it's just a cloud. Ew, it loves me. Gross. It's touched me. Like, it's it's a really interesting commentary. And it changed my whole perspective on this episode. Because at first I was just like, oh, great. Another cloud thing. Like, who gives a shit? I've seen like six episodes like this. It looks like like, an amoeba with sequins. Yeah. (laughs) It it was just a fabulous amoeba. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many of these episodes that have this subtext. Um. Some other like kind of quick hitters here. Return of the Archons, evil robots run the world. That's, that's another like um, computer that takes over the world. The Corbomite Maneuver. So many people talk about this being one of their favorite episodes, right? What ends up happening is this, there's like this weird cube in space. The Enterprise is trying to get past it. The cube won't move. Enterprise shoots phases at it. It gets pissed. And it's like, now I'm going to blow you up. And then they're like, oh, yeah, well, you're going to blow us up. We got this thing called Corbomite, which like we will blow you up. And you'll be obliterated. You didn't even know we had it, did you? Go ahead and scan it. You can't even see it. And they trick the thing, but it turns out that the alien is actually, it's Clint Howard, like a, like a six-year-old Clint Howard. So they go to the alien ship and it's just like this, this bald-headed kid. And he's just like, ah, great trick. And I'm like, this is the stupidest fucking episode. <laughs> like, it's a classic episode, but it's so goddamn dumb. But like, again, it's the 60s. Ah, who the hell cares? There's an episode that there's a theory that it is the first encounter Starfleet had with a Q entity, and it is called the Squire of Gothos. Um, the guy, the main character's name is Trelane, and Trelane is like dressed in like his like very like for whatever reason, man, they loved going into period pieces. So he's dressed like like a, an aristocratic nobleman from France in like the 17th or 18th century. And like, he's using his powers to fuck with the crew of the enterprise and stuff like that. And at the very end of the episode, his parents come and they're like, all right, that's enough. Time to go. You got to let Captain Kirk go. Oh, but that's not fair. I was playing. And like, there's a theory that that's the first encounter they had with the Q continuum. And I thought that was kind of cool. Season two, a mock time. This is the, the classic fight scene between the two of them. But the idea that when Spock gets a boner, he needs to mate or die, or he's going to fight everybody is just like ridiculous. He's like, no, I got to take care of this. And they're like, no, man, we got to shift around. They're like, no, get me to Vulcan. God damn it. Like, that's just, <laughs> it's such a ridiculous concept, but like, it makes sense when you think of the way the Vulcans are that like they're this strict logic, you have to repress everything. And then like once every seven years, let us just let us let loose and bone and we're good. 
Who Mourns for Adonis is the episode where the green hand comes out of space and grabs the Enterprise. Looks goofy as hell, right? But what it is, it turns out that that is the Greek god Apollo and that the Greek gods were actually alien entities that came to earth centuries ago. And that's where the Greek pantheon comes from. And I thought that was fascinating. I was like, that actually kind of makes sense. It's Arthur Clarke's third rule of science fiction. You know, when technology is so advanced, it'll look like magic. Kirk is very dismissive of it. He's just like, he was like, yeah, I'm a Greek God. And he's like, yeah, we don't believe in gods anymore. So fuck off. That blew me away. Like how early on Star Trek was just like, nah, we're not doing the religion thing anymore. Like we've advanced past that. And like, what a incredible concept that must have been back then because at one point he even says like scotty doesn't believe in gods and i'm like whoa man and that's like not even a thing and that's kind of cool but it also brings up another thing that they do a lot in star trek and that is let's fire phasers at this thing and blow it up and that'll fix everything because they basically blew up his greek temple and then he loses all his powers i was like okay cool the changeling this was this was amazing okay so the changeling is actually this robot that it was a space probe and it collided with like an alien entity in consciousness and got super powerful. What does this sound like? Sure. sounds a shit, a ton like uh, the motion picture, doesn't it? Because it's the same fucking plot. (laughs) All the, I've said a lot, obviously, but like across the board, there have been some amazing episodes of this series where no man has gone before. I love the concept of once you break through the galaxy, what happens and what happens to a person who's going to become a god. It's such an amazing concept. In fact, I had hoped they would explore this in the movies. I would hope that we would get to see when J.J. Abrams was doing that, there was a rumor that the second one, instead of it being Khan, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was going to be Gary Mitchell, which would have been dope. I thought that would have been such a better concept. But, you know, what are you going to do? You can't fix, uh, can't fix the past. Um, Balance of Terror. Uh, we've all seen Strange New Worlds, so that last episode of Strange New Worlds really like turns the original Balance of Terror episode on its, on its, uh, on its ear. Mm-hmm. Balance of Terror is a fantastic episode. Really, really good watch. Arena, Arena is where Kirk fights the Gorn. Mm, just like at its best, <laughs> like, and like you get to see him, he's got the ripped shirt, he's throwing punches, you know, he, he has an excuse to take off his shirt again. He ends up having mercy for the Gorn. He could have killed it and he didn't. Space Seed where Khan comes from. I always thought that episode was cheesy and they were just like, let's mine something cheesy for for uh, episode uh, for uh, the second Star Trek movie. No, this is actually a really, really good episode and it really delves into some really deep shit. In fact, if you're paying attention, Khan is essentially playing Mussolini, Hitler, kind of a mashup of the two because he's given this speech and he's banging on the on the desk with his fist showing about how you have to have order and control. And you're just like, Oh, fuck, he's a fascist. Cool. Okay, now I see this. Uh, The Devil in the Dark. Man, special effects are cheesy as shit, but it tells a great story where there's this alien that's killing people, and they're like, it's the bad guy. And then we find out that it's just trying to protect its babies. That's just a, it's a great episode, and Kirk and and McCoy work together to fix this thing, because it's made of, like, solid silicone, and they're like, well, we've heard it. How do we fix it? And McCoy's like, "Uh, give me some spackle and a trowel. I'll fix this shit right now. He manages to patch it back together and it appreciates that thing because Spock mind melds with it. And it's like, thank you. And it's it's just just a really good episode. Um, Trouble with Tribbles. Tell me you guys have seen It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yes. If the director of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World directed Star Trek, that's what Trouble with Tribbles is. It's just absolute bedlam fun. It's it's so ridiculous. It's a classic episode because it's it's different than everything else. 
Yeah. Um, the Doomsday Machine. There's this giant turd looking thing that's flying through space that just obliterates everything and like to see an obsessed captain it's very like Moby Dick which Star Trek loves doing Moby Dick analogies to see how it all comes together in the end is just a really really good uh episode especially like if you were like me and you were as a kid you just wanted to see like the Enterprise like shoot stuff like this is this is your episode but the best episode of Star Trek by far hands down is the city on the edge of forever it is such an amazing piece of science fiction uh, after accidentally overdosing on a powerful stimulant, Dr. McCoy becomes unbalanced and disappears through the Guardian of Forever, a newly discovered time portal on a remote planet. They go back to 1930s America, and they run into a woman named Edith Keeler, and Kirk falls in love with her. And Spock is able to establish that if things keep going the way they're going, that they're going to completely disrupt the timeline, because if Edith Keeler doesn't die, the Nazis win the war. And Kirk falls in love with her, and he basically has to watch her die, getting run over by a truck. It is one of the most heartbreaking scenes in any Star Trek that I've ever seen. I don't like William Shatner as a person, but kudos to this dude back in the 60s because he acted his ass off. They come back through the portal, and the Guardian of Forever is just like, you know, you've reset the timeline, yada, yada, yada. And Kirk's like, yeah, like, you know, not to be rude, but fuck you. You've ruined my life. Thank you very much. Can we beam the fuck out of here, please? Like, he's so beat down by this. And he's just like, let's get the hell out of here. Um, I don't think any Star Trek stands up as good as this one does on a rewatch. I need to start with rewatching that one. Although, like, after all of this, I'm so stoked to just, like, sit there and geek out to every one yes. of these episodes yeah. and just be like, oh, that's what Mike was saying. And that's what Mike was yeah. saying. Um, I only know of, I'm saying, I notably know of that episode because uh, Joan Collins. Yes. Is Edith. She's uh, Edith Keeler, yeah. <laughs> and, just, and just kills it in that episode, too. Just absolutely kills it, man. I love Joan Collins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they really play on some some amazing ideas and concepts like there's an episode where they beam down to a planet and again there's these moments that are very like cringy scotty had a head injury for whatever reason when he was on the enterprise and then he wants some some r and r right so they take him to this planet where there's like dancers and booze you know let's get him drunk and laid like you know like you do McCoy makes a comment. He goes, well, the reason why Scotty got injured was because of a woman. So I hope he doesn't hold some sort of grudge against women. And I'm sitting here listening to this. And I'm like, the fuck was going on in the 60s that somebody would do this? Again, product of its time. Yeah. But what ends up happening is, is like Scotty meets this cute girl. He's like, hey, I'm gonna walk home. <laughs> See you later, Captain. And they're walking through the fog. And then the woman gets murdered. But Scotty doesn't remember what happened. And then it happens to another one. This time it's a crewman of the Enterprise. Scotty's holding the dagger. And we find out that the, one of the inspectors who's like inspecting this murder is possessed by the spirit of Jack the Ripper. <laughs> and like, again, it's, it's fucking crazy. But it turns out that Jack the Ripper is not a person. It, it's this entity that's just pure evil that has traveled the galaxy for eons. It's existed since the beginning of time. So again... There's a certain amount of like, all right, this is fucking stupid, but it's also just kind of like, like, let me have some more popcorn. Oh, it's fucking Jack the Ripper. That's cool. Hum, hum. Like, it's yeah, so brilliant. out there, but also so entertaining. <laughs> but it's what a so way to look at, at human humanity's capacity for evil and be like, no, we, we don't have that capacity. It must have been an alien because we are never that evil to each other ever yeah no nah, 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 it, was, it was some it was some dark entity from the beginning of time or some shit you know like, but it really like i mean one of the things you're saying with it it's like this all paved the way for all 
of sci-fi. You know, when we were t- talking about earlier with, with uh, Apollo, the episode with the, you know, with the hand and all, it's like half of the Stargate series and even the movie, you know, was based on this idea that like, oh, wait, we're going to take ancient Egypt, but none of this were actual like gods. They were just aliens visiting from other planets and galaxies and had enough power that everyone must have assumed. Like the idea was fleshed out with Star Trek original series. And then everyone jumped on that. I mean, how many times is it something that's now like fairy tale horror melodramas and like suddenly you learn that like oh wait you mean hitler was a big bad wolf and and it's always stuff like that jack the ripper was an alien entity like there's so much of that storytelling that started with trek doing it in the 60s life, Mike Lunsford is editor-in-chief, podcaster, graphic artist, and writer at Great Geek Refuge. He's also hard at work in raising the next generation of nerds and faithfully posts his meals on Insta. William B.J. Robinson is a queer, Black, and Puerto Rican arts educator based in San Diego, as well as an actor, composer, and church choir director. B.J. is also creator and host of Tough Talk, a platform that focuses that focuses on getting comfy with the uncomfortable through community conversations. And he is host of KPBS Arts, a local PBS TV show about arts and culture across the US. He also wrote and is performing in Panda Musical in San Diego, my new favorite one-man show. For more info, just search at WillBJRob and or at tough.talk2020 on Facebook, Insta, Twitter, and YouTube. And I, dear listener, am Mariah Beachboard. I'm a playwright and podcaster for GGR, and I raise a very geeky family of teens, and I'm keeping it real in Rocket City, Alabama. Stay tuned, dear listeners, for our next episodes. You can check us out at our email address, federationconversations at gmail.com. We're also on Insta, and uh, drop by greatgeekrefuge.com to discover all the amazing happenings. And last of all, my friend, I pray you feel truly seen by those you love. Thank you for listening. Hang on just a second. I'm going to answer that question after I tell my kids to stop having a conversation right outside the door. Yeah. And then they do it again with another one um, where there's another robot controlling a society. But that one they fix because they're just like, hey, so the robot controls like all of like the repopulation of this planet. Hey, what if we taught you guys how to bang? And they were like, oh, we can do that. And they're like, yeah, oh, this is dope. We don't need the robot anymore. Can you blow it up with your phasers? Yeah. Yeah, we got you. Don't worry about it.
hope you guys enjoy banging. Like, it's just like these concepts to think that like Starfleet just shows up and you're like, you know what they don't do? Well, I just go blow their minds, man.